Okay, welcome back guys. We're going to do Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? So, um, again, because it's like going to be, you know, not that much time, we're going to do very high level, very high overview. But if there's any questions, anything you'd like to know, please don't hesitate to ask. <coughs> we'll start with Numbers because we're going chronologically. So, who knows what Numbers is about? Has anyone read Numbers before? Just want to see... Sure, numbers. All right. Everyone, everyone's like, no, no. Okay, so it's called numbers because there are two numberings or senses, right? So what happens there is there's going to be two senses, one at the beginning of the book uh, from chapters 1 to 4, and then one in chapter 26 towards the end, right? And the whole book revolves around these two numbers, right? So when you hear numbers, think of senses, right? You all know what a census is. I think the last census that happened in this country was like 20... 2011, was it that long ago? I think, wasn't it 2016? <laughs> yeah, clearly we don't know our numbers. <laughs> Right? But, but we all know what a census is, right? You're taking stock of the population, it's almost like a survey, that kind of thing, right? So, why are there two numberings, right? What happened? So remember, the people complained, right? They didn't believe God when they had a chance to enter into the promised land, right? And God says, because of your lack of faith, you are not going to enter into the promised land, and I'm going to kill the generations of people over the age of 20, Right. So you can imagine the people heard that promise. People pulled, some people pulled out their birth certificates because it's like, yeah, I'm 19 and a half. <laughs> it's good. Um, so God pro- promises that uh, the certain, certain generations will not see the promised land. So this book is written just before the Israelites enter into the promised land. And it serves as a warning to the Israelites. Are you going to trust and obey God? Or are you going to be like the previous generation, our parents who complained and grumbled and who had no faith in God, right? So even this past Sunday, uh, Pastor Mike in his sermon mentioned how it's, it's kind of the mark of unbelievers to be ungrateful, right? Like unbelievers just tend to be ungrateful. They tend to complain. They tend to not show gratitude and they do not give thanks to God. Right, Romans 1 tells us that. So you can imagine how hectic it is for those who are reading Numbers, who are about to enter the promised land, to read how so many people from their tribes died. Right? And you saw it all happen, because imagine at the time you may be 18 years old. Right? The promise doesn't apply to you that you will not see the promised land. So you see your parents, your grandparents, and maybe even your great-grandparents all die within the space of 40 years. Right? So kind of hectic and what do we find in this book what is the main theme what is the main message that we can take away from it one of them is that war and worship go together right it's hard for us to think of war fighting and worship going together but they do the priest would send the ark of the covenant into the war whenever the israelites would go to fight right it's kind of sometimes they'd actually lead with the ark of the covenant into battle and we'll break that down a bit more, like looking at the theme of war and worship as we get into some of the material. So just a quick breakdown so you know what happens uh, in the book. 
for all the all the material in the first ten chapters relate to Israel's preparations for a war conquest. Right? They're gonna go on a war conquest because on the way to the promised land they come across these tribes, the Amorites, the dot 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 ites. Yeah. The ites, right? So you'll see various war conquests. And then there is the first numbering, the first census that happens, right, in the first chapters, first ten chapters. And what we learn from the first census is two things. One, God is fulfilling the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the grains of the sand of the seashore, right? Uh, we see how big the nation has become. And I think, uh, it's, it's, I think it's only like the men, but like from we read, we just see the men who are mentioned. And I might be wrong about this, but you know, that implies that there's still the women and the children. So, uh, and it's something like close to a million people. So Matt says it's a lot of people. Basically, take my word for it. The second thing is, the second thing we can learn from this first census is that they are about to go into war, and so they count the number of men over twenty years old who could fight, right? And this was to kind of give Israel uh, motivation, you know, because they see just how many men they have to fight the war. You know, it gives them confidence and and um, faith that you know they would overcome their enemies. So. Chapters 10, 11, and 12, the people march from Mount Sinai to a camp closer to the promised land, right? And then chapters 13 to 19 documents the 40 years spent in the wilderness. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, right? So chapters 13 to 19 cap, uh, captures this. And then in chapter 26, we see the second census or the second numbering. And then in between that, we also see in chapter 13, when the spies are sent out to survey the land and the national rebellion begins, initiated by the bad spies. Right, so that's a very high-level summary. So let's kind of go into the detail. Right? So from chapters 1 to 9, the Israelites are preparing for their journey and entry into the promised land. Right? Moses begins by taking a census of all the tribes, all 12 tribes, Primarily to see how many men are available and are in shape for military service, right? And then Moses dedicates the Levites and instructs the, the Nazarite vows and laws. So remember, the Levites are the priests. So he dedicates them and they kind of like establish, you know, they're like, these are our priests. Uh, it's that whole ceremonious kind of thing that's going on there. And then during this time, the Israelites also celebrate the second Passover. So one year after their exit from bondage. Right. So the first numbering, if you think about it, the first numbering is when of the people when they come out of Egypt and then they spend 40 years in the wilderness and then they number again and then they see how many people we've lost in that time. And uh, it's a crazy detail, spoiler alert, like I think only two people made it in both senses. I mentioned in both senses and those are the faithful spies that we'll look at just now. <coughs> so... Like I said, second census just before they enter the promised land, right? Um, remember the people complained because they did not believe God when he told them that enter and take the land, right? So what they did was they sent in 12 spies, 12 spies to go survey the land, to go see the enemy, to go see, um, you know, uh, what are we up against? And 10 of those spies were bad, two of them were good. The two, the two good ones were Joshua and Caleb. They came back with a good report. 
The others came back with a bad report. They were like, no, you know, no, the 10 spies showed little faith. They were slandering what they believed God had promised them. Right? God says, go in, you will win. The 10 spies are like, no, you know, we will be decimated, crushed, whatever, whatever, whatever. And uh, they did not believe that God would help them, right? And the people as a whole were persuaded that it was not possible to take the land. And as a result, the entire nation was made to wander the desert for 40 years, right? Until almost the entire generation of, of men had died. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who, who um, brought back a good report and believed that God would help them succeed. So they believed the promises of God, right? And like I said, they were the only two who, uh, from that generation, who were, who were permitted to go into the promised land after the time of wandering. So God said, because of your lack of faith, you will not enter the promised land, and anyone who was 20 years or older would be killed in the wilderness. So in chapters 10 to 12, the Israelites then traveled to, uh, from the wilderness to Sinai to approach the promised land. And while they're going there, obviously it's traveled through a desert, desert area. The people complain about their food, right? They complain about their situation, even saying that things were better for them in Egypt, right? Things were better for them in bondage and slavery. So God gives them, he gives them quail. So quail is like those small birds that you, that you can eat for meat. He gives them quail, you know, he kind of, he's gracious even in that, you know, the people complain, but he still gives them what they like. But the people become greedy. And so uh, they, you know, start, they spend hours and days just gathering quail and eating it up. They become greedy. And so while they're eating that quail, uh, he sends a plague. And that plague kills a whole lot of them, right? In chapters 13 to 19, we see severe punishment for disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. Moses, uh, this is where Moses sends out the 12 spies to um, survey their land. And the whole episode of the, of, the, of the report comes back. And then the last chapters of Numbers from chapter 20 to 36, the new nation, sorry, the new generation of Israelites again attempt to enter the land and take it as God had promised. Right. This time, when they do actually believe God and they do what they were told, they easily conquer the two nations that confront them as they're entering. Right. So chapters 22 to 24 is very interesting because it tells the story of Balak and Balaam. Right? Balaam. I think it's, I think it's pronounced Balaam. So you guys have heard of that? Those two individuals? So... Um, Balak was the king of the Moabites, a gentle nation, Gentile nation, not a gentle nation, no, not gentle, right? And he's scared of the Israelites because they've been conquering their enemies, right? So what Balak does, he sends messengers to a prophet named Balaam so that he can learn how to seduce the Israelites to worship the false god Baal. And it's interesting because Balaam was, sorry, Balaam was a wicked prophet, right? He was evil, and yet he was not a false prophet, right? Because if you actually read the account, uh, Balaam heard from God, and God gave him true prophecies to speak. He prophesied, and they all came true, right? So he wasn't a false prophet, but he was an evil prophet. And in the end, because of his wickedness and his evil, he led the nation of Israel astray. And he advised Balak 
on how to cause Israel to sin through sexual immorality and through idolatry, right? He got them to worship false gods. And I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember when we uh, touched on false prophets and, you know, people are able to do genuine miracles, genuine uh, works, wonders, you know, but it's the power of the devil, right? It's by evil spirits that they're able to do these things. Here, it's kind of different because um, it's a person who's doing it by God, but he's evil, right? And Balaam kind of becomes the, the par- not the paradigm, but he becomes like the, the model of what not to be as a prophet in the New Testament, right? So uh, Peter compares false teachers to Balaam. So Second Peter 2 verse 15, he says, uh, forsaken the right way, talking about false teachers, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain and wrongdoing. Sorry, who loved gain from wrongdoing, right? And I think, like I think Paul also refers to false prophets as Balaam. So he's like kind of like you know the paragon of false false teachers and what what they're about. In the end, they're all about themselves, you know, because that's what Balaam was about as well. And what you get from that account is the way Satan tries to destroy God's people hasn't really changed, right? Because Satan can't destroy God's people directly, he goes through the back door, right? He uses sexual immorality and idolatry, and those are the two biggest um, problems for God's people, you know? It's been the case in history and even today in the church. Uh, Sexual immorality is just terrible, you know, it's a sin um, that breaks families, breaks churches, and idolatry is obviously, you know, one of the main sins that, that plague the, the people of God. So the people themselves, right, they fall for this trick. They fall for Balaam and uh, the sexual immorality and idolatry. And because of this obedience, about 24,000 people die, right, Inclu- including Balaam, right, because God in the end comes in and is like, putting an end to it. And so before the book of Numbers ends, Moses again conducts the census and Joshua, uh, Joshua, right, who we'll look at when we get to the historical books, he then assumes the leadership of Israel in place of Moses because now Moses is also banned from seeing the promised land due to his own disobedience, right? So any questions on that? That's a very high level still summary. It's probably a question, but just to, um, I don't know, I tend to correct it. Uh, regarding Balaam, uh, I think it's also mentioned also in Jude, <coughs> where these people come from. So yes, that's, that's the passage I was thinking of. Yes. Uh, also, just Christ speaks about him also, that, uh, you know, yeah. revelation. Revelation, yeah. Uh, but one thing I think that's also is worth being mentioned that uh, he was kind of being bribed in, by Balak. Um, I think yeah, it was when you have don't just like that and mm-hmm. just don't you just be kind of fine also, you know. Yeah. But because we don't we see the end, the angel of the Lord was just stopping him and he just did not see that then mm-hmm. Rachel to me said, Why are you beating me up so painfully? You know? Because yeah, he said that yeah. quite funny yeah. when he said that, you know. Yeah. Because, because so anything, you know. So uh, I think also we have to just realize that uh, it was a prophet uh, when we led him to really be influenced by Father, like, there's also money that he said it could happen with this money. And um, even God allowed him to go to a kind of like disobedience, and also get go ahead 
and it's what's going to happen because I've blessed those, I've blessed Israel, and I don't know if you know, but it's a part of what, where is it? Where it says, um, what the Lord has blessed, no one can get. Mm. So remember, the Lord has blessed Israelite. Yeah, and you, you see the perfect example of that in Palam yes, and how yeah. it goes about, yeah. So I, I really encourage you guys to read it. So chapters 22 to 24, the whole account, because it's really incredible because, you know, um, it's like here's a person who's following the instructions of God. Uh, Balak wanted to curse the people of God because he's using a prophet. He's like, so curse these people. But God is like, no, pronounce blessing. And so he can only pronounce blessing, right? And I think Balak ends up getting frustrated because it's not working. And so, yeah. And so, in the end, he's like, okay, we'll do this. You know, sexual immorality, idolatry, get them to worship your false gods. That's how you win. So, very interesting in terms of, like, just our understanding of false prophets. You know, what they might look like today. You know, they might look as genuine as, you know, what scripture says a, a prophet looks like. But really, when you dig beneath the surface and you look at the heart and a lot of things. So, yeah, just... Read that in your spare time, guys. I think bedtime reading tonight. Um, so the uh, what we find in the book of Numbers is, like I said, war and worship are mingled together. You can't separate them. This is what you find in the Old Testament, and um, um, it's what we are also called to in the New Testament, right? It hasn't changed for you and I. We are still in a war. Whenever we fight sin. That is warfare, right? Whenever we fight temptation, it is war, right? Paul uses warfare language when he exhorts believers. Uh, in, Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God, right? Verse 12 of Ephesians 6 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God. So we are in a war, right? And we are told to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and to use the word of God as your sword. Whenever we fight sin, that is warfare, right? So we are called to wage war against our sin uh, because we fight not against flesh and blood, right? And Paul will say to Timothy, if you want to be a good soldier in this life, do not entangle yourselves with the affairs of this world, right? Do not become worldly in your thinking. So we're in a war and we're called to worship as well. Right? When you are fighting sin, you're worshiping God because you are fighting to honor God, right? You're fighting to uh, <clears throat> do what is right and is pleasing in his own sight, in, in, in God's eyes, right? Uh, when you're fighting sin, you're worshiping him because you're obeying him. And whatever you do, remember, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do everything to the glory of God. So just think yourself when you come to uh, worship on a Sunday. It's, it's a war, right? It's a war. Uh, just getting to church itself, Satan will try to hinder you through legitimate or illegitimate means. You know, that is one battle. When you do get to church, it can be a battle to focus, you know, to focus, to actually uh, listen in on the sermon uh, you could be just distracted by all kinds of things, whether, you know, it's the crying baby in the back or this person's wearing something really bright or you could be distracted by real emotionally heavy things that you're going through, right? Either way, it's a fight for us to focus on the Lord, to fix our eyes on Him. There's a million, million things that can distract us, uh, but 
we are called to discipline our minds, right? Discipline your minds to worship the Lord and to receive from Him. And very easily seems like we're not in a war because we can't see our enemy, right? We can't see, it's not the flesh and blood. It's not like people are attacking us in the streets. Um, but in a sense, we fight with, well, the reality is we fight with, you know, powers and principalities. And that is, in a sense, more real than the flesh and the blood that we see in our daily, right? So um, in Numbers, we have, that, we have that mixed together, war and worship. And the picture of Israel, you know, the army going to fight men with swords and the priests right behind them is kind of like the perfect image of that, right? So if you turn to chapter 12, we'll, we'll look at a few interesting passages. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1 is a very interesting chapter. Uh, I think Sabeda was talking about it, right? Miriam and, and Aaron. Sorry? This is... Oh, you're still numbers, yes. Numbers, numbers. Still numbers, chapter 12. Right, Miriam and Aaron. Uh, so, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So, Moses had married a Cushite woman. The Cushites were African, right? They were black people. And his brother and his sister are not happy about it. Um, <clears throat> Moses, especially sister, right? Moses' sister was not for it. Um, and so God gives her leprosy, which is a disease that causes the skin to rot and it ends up turning super white, right? Moses marries a black lady. Miriam is not happy about that. So God is like, you love being white so much. Ha, here you go. We'll make you super white, right? And so some people have, taught, have, have thought that interracial marriage is forbidden, right? Um, people especially use the Old Testament to suggest that. Because, you know, they're like, people shouldn't mix, this nation should be pure, this nation should be pure, etc., etc. But there's no such thing in the Bible, right? When, when the Bible says you cannot marry the Amalekites or the Canaanites, it's not because of their ethnicity, it's because they are unbelievers, right? It's because they're unbelievers. So remember, anyone, even at this time, anyone could become a Jew. So even if you weren't born in Israel, you could become part of Israel. You could proselytize. Um, but if you remain an Amalekite, it means you are worshipping false gods. And the principle is exactly the same today, right? Do not be unequally yoked. You may marry someone as long as they are uh, a believer, right? And very, very, very importantly, they are also of the opposite gender. Because we have to state that as well nowadays. Um, and in chapter 21, we have God's children are sinning again. Surprise, surprise. So God judges them with fiery serpents that bite them, right? And causes them to suffer and then to die. But God provides a way out for them. So that's chapter 21. But God provides a way out for them. He instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent and then to lift it up, right? And all the people have to do is look at the serpent and then they will be healed. And John's gospel says that as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? That's John chapter 12. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, because it's look and live, right? Look to the Messiah, the one who has died on behalf of his people and live. But it's also very interesting that Jesus would kind of link himself to a serpent, right? It's like, why a serpent? You know, because remember Genesis 3, um, we're looking for a serpent crusher. Now the serpent crushes a serpent. You know, what's going on? Um, but if you think about it, the book of Isaiah speaks of the servant who is going to be crushed, right? And he who knew no sin became sin and then was crushed as though he was a sinner. Right? So this is a powerful picture of what Christ would do. He did not become a sinner. He became sin. He was treated as a sinner. So in a sense, the snake imagery is ideal. It's like perfect because he who knew no sin became sin. Right? Does that make sense? So he was treated as a sinner. And another just like uh, interesting piece of information, like you've seen, I think it's Salvation Army or like some militaries will have like the snake with a, no, the pole. Yeah, and ambulances like Caleb and all that. It's, it's based on this, right? Like the people are afflicted and whatever, look to the snake and that will save you or live. So it's not Illuminati, guys. Don't worry, don't worry. So, yeah, that's Deuteronomy. Are we good? Are we good? Okay. No, what is in you? That's numbers. That is numbers. My bad. My bad. Yeah, I'm like, everyone's like, okay. That was quick. Uh, sorry, guys. Yeah, three books in. Who thought of that? Um... Okay, let's do Deuteronomy. Right, that's numbers. Are there any questions, comments? Does um, it make sense? Yes. I don't know what you are, I think this time was something to consider. Um, there's a part where in uh, numbers mm. where people, there's a census, right? And probably if you are facing a tribe, you can go there, just go back, and just pay something like that. I know, I know how much. And that happened also just uh, with Mary and then Joseph. I, I didn't read that much about that, but I, I thought I'm not, not too clued up uh, on it. Uh, yeah, I've seen something a bit on it, so I'm probably going to come up with Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that much about it. Like, when I was reading this, I was like, put it to the side. So. <laughs> Alright, is everyone else good? Deuteronomy. So... Deuteronomy is the last of Moses' books, right? It's at the end of the Pentateuch or the Torah. And the genre of Deuteronomy is not that much different to that of Exodus, right? It's, it's a, in fact, I, I find a lot of similarities between it and Exodus without the excitement of Exodus. 
Um, it's a narrative history and law. Although there's also a song from Moses just after he commissions Joshua, who's going to be his successor. And the song that Moses sings describes the history of uh, the Israelites and what had happened. Uh, it's kind of like a, a recap. You know, Moses is just like uh, nostalgic and he's just like going through this is what happened to us, this was us, and he's recounting what had happened and what the Israelites had experienced. Moses wrote uh, Deuteronomy approximately 1407 BC, if that's of any interest to you. And he wrote this book to remind the Israelites of what God had done and to remind them of what God expects of them. Yes. Um, like when you just mentioned that in 1407 BC, like, was the whole Torah written approximately in the same time period? Or I don't know. It... No, different points. Different points. Yeah. Yeah, different points. Um, yeah. So like this, for example, it's written at the end of Moses' life. Whereas like for, yeah, different points. <clears throat> so the name Deuteronomy literally means second law because Moses gives the law for the second time. So remember, we get the Ten Commandments given again in Deuteronomy. So in chapters 1 to 4, Moses looks back on some of the details of the history of Israel, such as the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. And then he urges them to obey the laws of God. And then in chapters 5 to 28, Moses restates the Ten Commandments to the Israelites and Moses explains the principles and instructions for living a godly life as, uh, as, as God's chosen nation. And these include how to love the Lord, uh, laws of worship, laws regarding relationships, you know, like divorce, what to do when a man divorces his, uh, his wife, and also the, cons the consequences and penalties if the laws are broken, right? And then in chapters 29 to 30, there is a move of Israel to commit themselves again to the Lord as a nation, right? And to stand apart unto God, to be holy, because remember, to be holy is to be set apart. And um, this consists, uh, uh, we learn not only of like knowing the laws that God has commanded, but obeying them, right? And placing God first. And then finally, in chapters 31 through 34, we see the change in leadership in Israel. Moses, the one who's been leading them the entire time, hands over his authority to Joshua and commissions him. And then Moses blesses the tribes. So similar to how Jacob blessed um, his sons almost 450 years earlier, right? In the last chapter, God shows Moses, he shows Moses the promised land. Remember, he cannot enter it, but he shows him the promised land. And then after that, Moses dies on Mount Nebo, right? That's a very high-level summary of what you get in the book. Um, I'll, I'll, I think on the group I'll also put this for ease of reference. So Deuteronomy, we get the law again in chapter 5, and it's best to think about it as Moses' sermon at the end of his life, right? He's recounting history, everything that has gone on, all that the Lord has done, how they've disobeyed, and right at the end, there's all these blessings and these cursings. And we didn't look at them in Leviticus, but even there you'd find blessings and cursings. And blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. But if you read the passage, you know, like, the, the, blessing, the blessings are great, you know. But then there's, like, this many blessings, and then the curses are, like, you know, they're, like, there's that many. And the curses are also very, very severe, 
right? And I encourage you to go and read the blessings and the cursings at the end of this book and even Leviticus because what you're going to see, especially when we look at the prophets, is that these cursings are put into action. These cursings actually happen, right? There are heavy consequences because we see things like uh, it's promised that you will eat your children, right? And you will disobey me. And that's exactly what happens, right? God said if they disobey him, he would raise nations and they would conquer them and starve them to the point where women would fight each other to eat their own children, right? And that happens when you read uh, Jeremiah, for example, or some of the other prophets, like crazy hectic things. So it's very interesting because like all the curses that you see um, end up happening, right? Um, and mainly just because they go off, off the false gods, right? It's idolatry. It's always the case. Um, and this is because sin against God is that serious, right? And so Moses is giving them the law again, warning them uh, not to do this. So it's kind of like, he's, it's almost like when you read it, it's like he's saying, this is what you guys are going to do, but don't do it. But then they end up doing it anyways, right? <clears throat> so let's go to ch chapter 5 quickly. Chapter 5, verse 3 says, so this is Moses saying, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Right? So God is making a covenant, but it's kind of interesting because Moses is saying, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. But is that true? <laughs> Moses did make, sorry, he did, God did make the covenant with their fathers, right? So what is Moses getting at here? Remember that this is the second generation we see at the end of Numbers, right? Um, so Moses says that it wasn't with them, it's not with them, it wasn't with them that God made this covenant, but with us who are alive today, right? And the same is true for us, even today. The moment you get saved, you, made a covenant, you make a covenant with Christ, right? The covenant is made with you, right? It was made with the fathers who are dead now, but so also is it made with the, this generation and the next generation and the next generation, right? Then you read verse 6, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? But this generation was never in Egypt, right? But they were because of corporate identity, right? Does that make sense? They are all God's people. And this is very important, right? When you and I read scriptures, we must not read it as if we are spectators or as if, you know, just uh, reading a novel uh, in our homes. It's just an interesting story, right? This is our family we're reading about, right? This is our history, our lineage. This is our heritage, right? Yes. This is our heritage. And that's actually the, 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 one of the reasons why the name of our church is Heritage is because, you know, we're not just here. We come from a long line of... Um, forefathers and foremothers, um, we were brought out of Egypt, right? We were delivered from slavery, from oppression. So don't read this passively, right? These are our people, our great, 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 great grandfathers are Paul and Peter, uh, Ruth and Esther are our great, 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 great grandmothers. You know, these are our people, right? And then Moses goes through the Ten Commandments still in chapter 5, and it's like the ones given in Exodus, except the only difference in these Ten Commandments is when he talks about the Sabbath. So if you go to verse 12, verse 12 he says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Right? And then he gives the reason why they should keep the Sabbath. 
verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out, out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So, in Exodus 20, do you guys remember the motivation for keeping the Sabbath? For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Right? In Deuteronomy, the, deliver, uh, sorry, the, the motivation is deliverance from oppression as opposed to creation. Right? But those things go together. Right? Remember, we are a new creation in Christ, and we have been delivered from oppression, from, from bondage to sin. Right. Then we get to chapter 6, and chapter 6 is one of the high points of Judaism. Right. Um, chapter 6, verse, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Right? I'm sure that sounds familiar to a lot of you. Uh, Christ said that when his disciples asked him which is the greatest command, right? Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in, the, in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So this is an important verse, especially with regards to, first of all, understanding God, right? But practically, uh, when it comes to raising children, right? It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's also a statement of us being monotheists, right? We only believe in one God. There is only one God, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, there's no what's called henotheism. Henotheism is, uh, you've heard of Christians say, yes, you know, we serve one God, but you also have your God. You serve him, you know? They believe that like, there's multiple gods. You just choose who you want to serve. Right, but we we not we not Hindus. Hindus say that, but they're like, oh, okay, you worship this God, that's fine, uh, but we worship this God, and people are just happy with that nonsense, really, when there's only one God, right? <clears throat> and Moses also says, teach your children about the Ten Commandments. So from a young age, you to bring children up in a godly way to know God's commands, and it doesn't say some of the commands. It doesn't say don't teach them about adultery. Right, um, wait until they're sixteen. You find out about sex. Doesn't say that. They start to teach them from a young age, right? Teach them all the commands. And when are you to be teaching the uh, your children about the Lord your God? It's all the time, right? Because what does the passage say there? The passage says, uh, "I shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." Right, so. Sometimes, as believers, you know, we may fall into the trap of having a set devotional time, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, right? Um, it's a good thing to set aside time for uh, regular devotion. But when you read the text, um, it's real life. 
You know, it's, it's happening in real time. It's, it's impromptu, right? When you're teaching your kids, it's when you do life together. Look for teaching moments. Jesus was not with his disciples only on Thursdays from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., right? In a building doing school of the Old Testament because that's what they had at the time. Um, he was teaching them through all the moments of life. He walked with them, right? In the same way, uh, disciple and raise your kids that way. In the same way, walk with the Lord that way. You know, you don't just have God early in the mornings or late in the evenings. And then chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. So it's basically saying, it's basically the Lord saying, I love you because I love you. Right? Which is great because if God said, I love you because you are good at X, Y, Z, or if you are good at this, as soon as you stop doing that thing, you know, he won't love you anymore. It's an unconditional love for his people. The motivation is in God, right? He will never stop loving his people, which is comforting, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So he says, you're not great. You're not amazing, right? Contrary to what social media tells you. You're not that great. But I chose you and I love you because I love you. And so Deuteronomy, um, and then Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 18 we won't go into them, but they deal with false prophets and laws regarding false prophets. If they got one wrong, a prophecy that is, what would happen to them? They'd be put to death, right? You cannot get anything wrong with prophecy. It has to be 100% correct. And if someone comes to you and says they're a prophet, hold them to that standard, right? Because remember what a prophet is. It is a person who brings God's word, exactly, right? And God cannot get anything wrong, right? So... Um, when you see someone say something that God has said, and it's not true, it's either the prophet is a liar or God is, and God is not a liar, right? But God also says in Deuteronomy 13, chapter 13, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the Lord is saying, sometimes I'll make sure that false prophets get all the prophecies right. Right? But they will have the bad theology. Right? They'll lead you after false gods. They'll lead you astray. I'm testing you to see if you're going to go after them since you're more interested in fireworks. Since you're more interested in the lights. Right, than in the truth. And today, remember, we see deception, signs and wonders. The devil can do these things. Um, if there's a guy who gets all the prophecies right, but his theology is not correct, you should stay away. Right? If he's doing loads of miracles and whatever, but his theology is bad, then stay away. Why is that? Because verse 14, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Right? Then chapter 14, verse 24. And if the way, it says, if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, 
when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you. So this is speaking of the Israelites when they were to go to this, uh, the central sanctuary and to bring sacrifices and offerings, right? Um, it says, if it's too far away from you, you know, where you guys are supposed to gather, then verse 25, then you shall turn, speaking of your tithe, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, right? Isn't God great? Like, he's like, whatever you want, you know, treat yourself in a sense. Who um, says, you know, wine or strong drink, right? Referring to alcohol. God says, go and spend it, good food, good drinks. And he says, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. It's a beautiful picture. The Lord says, go and spend it, go and enjoy yourself in his presence. You know, you're enjoying it. Um, to his glory, right? Mentioning this because it's not a sin to drink alcohol, right? It's a good gift from God. If you don't drink alcohol, that's fine. If you do drink alcohol, that's fine, right? Um, but just don't think you're better for doing X or Y, right? Um, alcohol is not a sin. Drunkenness is, right? Drunkards go to hell. That's what the scripture says. Chapter 20. Sorry, chapter 28. 28. So uh, this is where you find the blessings and the cursings uh, that I kind of spoke about, where it's like really hardcore stuff. Um, so chapter 28, verse 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to other people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. Right? This is God telling his people what will happen to them if they disobey. It's kind of like a hectic, harsh warning. Right? And then the book ends with the death of Moses. Um, and they end with the, these, the, the challenges that he's giving to the people with the blessings and the curses. And if you're reading it, you'd, you'd be wondering, is this nation going to survive? Will they enter the promised land or not? Because, I mean... Like, we've just been outside of the promised land. Um, and now Moses is gone. He's dead. So what's going to happen? Come next week to find out. <laughs> and then, uh, just quickly, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Last verse. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Right? It's a very, very important uh, verse I think for believers don't try to be more clever than God's word right where scripture makes an end we make an end right not everything that is true of God has been revealed to us right might not be revealed to us and there are secret things that we just need to trust and obey and trust God and be humble before him about you know in the end he's in control he's God and we're not um, what God has revealed is for the sake of obedience and what he's revealed is sufficient for us, right? So, yeah, and we end there. Any questions on Deuteronomy? Yeah, well, I'll just uh, add on, uh, you mentioned Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, up until verse 11. Uh, but it's also something very interesting from when you look at the 